From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back, friends, to The Dairy Show. I am, of course, your host, Katie Schmidt, and we are finishing up our conversation from the last episode with Robbie Watson. So, on episode 40, hopefully you have given it a listen, we covered dairy farming in Lima, Peru with Robbie and what it's like really in that country to produce dairy products and the evolving climate of the dairy industry there. Robbie also dairy farms in Ecuador though. So this is the second half of my conversation with Robbie where we talk about dairy farming in Ecuador. It's actually, you need to, to change gears because it's completely different. Ecuador, as its name says it, it's in the it's in the equatorial line, and it rains year round. Actually, we we tend to say here we only have two seasons: the rainy season and the flood season, because <laughs> we get so much water. And compared to Peru, that we have a desert in Ecuador, everything is green. Even grass will grow on the concrete if you allow it, because it's so green. And that's why you can get really good quality of forages. Uh, I mean, you just need to plant good forages, but you, you can harvest good forages and produce milk economically. You just need land. Now, the industry is very different than Peru because the limit is the size of your land. Normally, water is not a problem, but the grazing land that you can afford to have is limited. Uh, here, most of the dairies are 20 cows, 30 cows, 50 cows. Uh, I would say 90% of the dairies are smaller than 50 cows. And a few are 100, 150, 200, uh, because they need more land. Now, by uh, for, first of all, we do have uh, seasonal breeding. We try not to have calvings in the summer, which is... The, it's a rainy season, but drier than, than the rest of the year. And we can have one month or a month and a half without rain. And then the quality of the grass can uh, have a challenge. It's better to have dry cows eating that grass, you know, than fresh cows. And also because your milk production will drop in the summer. And also it's, uh, we arrange to have vacations for the workers and uh, fixing the farm during that time so we try to stop milking you know at least one month or one month and a half so that's that's a big difference now not all farms do it a, a lot of farms go year round but they just have less uh, less cows milking during the summer so how does the seasonal calving impact the regular milk supply or how does the industry adjust to that lack of milk or influx of milk uh, I guess maybe matches up with what we see with the spring flush, as we call it. Yes, well, it is a challenge and they fix it by price. I mean, when there's too much milk, they pay you less. And when there's less milk, because they don't have to go out and promote it, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there's a couple of plants that uh, process uh, milk, powdered milk. So if they have excess milk, they will convert it into powdered milk and they'll export it. But the beauty of Ecuador is you have many small milk processors, maybe 200,000 kilos of milk per day. So there's a lot of competition. You can move very easily from one milk processor to another. 
because there's competition. They, they always want more milk than what, what they can get. You know, so it's a, it's a good position for the dairy farmer against you know other countries where you have quotas or you have limits. Is the trend the same in Ecuador as it is in Peru with the consumer demand for evaporated milk? Is that a part of the, the cultural consumption there? No, no. Ecuador consumes fresh milk, a lot of yogurt. To give you an idea. In Peru, the milk consumption per person is like about 80, 80 liters of milk. It's very, very low uh, compared to any other country in the world. I think the U.S. is about 350, and uh, Ecuador is around 150. So it's almost double. Here, people consume much more milk, uh, fluid milk, and uh, milk products than, uh, than in Peru. It's, it's, it's very different. The two very different countries, the systems, the production system, the processing system, the market, you can see the competition in the shelves. Actually, that makes it more difficult because you have tighter margins and uh, you know less uh, price. But for instance, Ecuador pays more to the producer than Peru because in Peru there's a monopoly. I mean, there's few processors that own the market. In Ecuador, there's competition about uh, from the processors. Like for instance, right now we're getting paid 52 cents a dollar per liter in Ecuador, and in Peru, for the same milk, we get 40 cents. Wow, that's a massive difference. Oh yeah, if we could get the same money in Peru, we would be making a lot of money. But also, if you put the cost of the land, you know, into place, then your profitability in Ecuador is less. But the cows leave more free milk. Uh, for you, that's the way we measure, you know, uh, uh, milk price or what you get for the milk against the cost of feeding in Ecuador is less. But you have other expenses, which are different. Labor is much more expensive in Ecuador than in Peru, for instance. Uh, electricity is also more expensive. So it's, it's very difficult to compare from one country to other because this subtle differences that make, a, at the end of the day, a huge difference. In Ecuador, you don't dare to hold feedstuffs. Uh, I mean, you, you hold corn and soybean basically as concentrates, but uh, you're not hauling silage or haylage or even hay. I'm really glad you're touching on these. I was taking notes of questions I wanted to ask that I was picking up on as we were going. And, and one of them was related to the fact that you are making more money on your milk in Ecuador. So... I guess, understand the logic of why not, why you wouldn't want to push those cows and, and make more money, but it sounds like it's a, a labor issue and a cost issue on that side of things. Yes, well, basically the thing is today in Ecuador, the cows produce milk out of forage. I can see concentrate and we do give some concentrate. We go up to three kilos of concentrate per cow, but I could go up to eight kilos and get much more milk but basically I would be paying my milk because the concentrate is very expensive. And the cheapest way or the most efficient way to produce milk is through hay. Have the cows convert the, the green or the, the forage into milk and not concentrates. If you start putting concentrate, like our average production in the farms in Quito, one of them is in 18 and the other one is in 20 liters per cow per day. As in Peru, we're in between 30 and 36 liters per cow per day. I could push them to 25, but 
I would be spending much more money in concentrate and accelerating the cows to produce more would hurt fertility, would hurt uh, you know, other aspects of the dairy where we feel that producing a little bit less, the cows live longer, we get more calves and uh, you know, less mastitis and less problems. So we, we don't wanna push the cows harder on a grazing environment. So Unless we can produce the best alfalfa and the best uh, forages. Yeah. So when you say forages, are you you're talking just like fresh forages, not necessarily fermented haylage or corn silage? Is that am I no, correct? It's a hundred percent fresh uh, forages. Basically, we uh, we put we put clover, rye grasses, uh, tetralites. We we use a mix of like eight or ten different uh, forages to get the best balance in, in fiber and quality fiber and protein. And uh, if we can make the cows produce milk out of the forage, it's the best deal for us. The minute we start importing concentrates to produce milk, uh, we're working for the, for, for the processors of the concentrate and not for us. So are you not processing forages and storing forages because of all of the moisture, is it, it's a weather issue? Is that correct? No, no, no. In Ecuador, uh, we have about 50% humidity normally. You can go up to 60, but it's not a big deal. No, if we have excess, we will do haylage and uh, we, will, we can do silage too. And we do it for the summertime. But uh, it, it's, it's not a common practice on a day-to-day. -day. Uh, some farmers will open bales of hay and feed it on the pasture so that the cows need less space and that they, that way they can have more cows per hectare. You know, it's, it's a way of uh, densifying. Instead of having more space to graze, uh, they supplement with haylage or silage. How much? And we do it in summertime. How much space Pardon? do you need for one cow? That's a very good question and very difficult to answer because it depends on many aspects. In our farm, we currently have, uh, in one of the farms, three cows per hectare, and on the other one, we have five. I know of people that go all the way to 10, but that needs a much more intensive uh, management, you know, and uh, more, um, I, I would say, more technified. Uh, and there's a lot of people that only have one cow per hectare, uh, which for me, uh, it's not cost effective. When you're thinking about pasture management or forage management, are you rotating cows through different pastures like we see here in the States? Or how do you manage that space for those cows? Yes, actually, our farms are very different. One is very long. It's five kilometers long. So the cows would have to walk too much and we've cut the farm in two. And what we do is we try to have a long walk in the morning and a short walk in the afternoon. So at the end, they don't work more than three kilometers per day. Uh, on the other farm, which is more, uh, I mean, it, it's more like a square, it's easier. And yes, the cows, we move the string. In one farm, we move it five times a day. In the other one, we move it three times a day. And that's basically, because of the ease of management of the farm and ease of control. And uh, we try to give them enough length 
so that they can eat and then lay down. But, the, but for the next uh, eating, they have to move. So they're leaving their manure and their pee on the, on the place where they ate. And they don't eat all over the place and, and mess the place. If you give them too much space, then you will probably have a better yield in milk production, but you will not manage the land well. So we try to balance, you know, the optimization of one can be uh, screwing the other one. And we try to optimize the total output of the farm, which is liter of milk per hectare, not liters of milk per cow. It's a different way of measuring. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of milking facilities then are you using at these two different farms? That's a good question. In one farm, we have a state-of-the-art Delaval AA milk parlor. In the other one, we have a, a flat barn, which is technology of 1902, a very old system. Both work beautifully. I mean, the flat barn has no equipment. It's also a Delaval milk system, but the man goes to the cow, not the cows goes to the man. You know, our double eight, uh, it's a it's a herringbone, and it, it works beautiful. Actually, we could be milking more cows there, and we're aiming to grow uh, the herd. Is there a push towards technology industry-wide in Ecuador, similar to what we see here in the U.S. or even in Europe or Canada with the move towards robots and data tracking and those types of things? Yes, very much. We don't use robots on the on the, on the raising farms because I don't think the technology is there yet, but uh, it's something to look in the future. But definitely we're, we do have transponders and meters. And today, if you don't use technology, you're losing a lot. I mean, you need just for heat detection, you know, uh, if you don't detect heat, you don't breed. If you don't breed, you have no pregnancies, you have no pregnancies, you have no calves, and you have no calves, you have no milk. And if you have no milk, you have no money. So you need to have technology. We're we're trying to be very much uh, up to date with technology. That's one of the reasons I go to World Dairy Expo. Because I learn every every year, I like to go to the seminars and uh, visit the farm, virtual farm tours and try to learn what the you know the best people are doing. So, what are you then using for cow monitoring for your heat detection? We have uh, pedometers. Uh, okay, so like activity trackers. Yes, yes, and uh, we're looking forward to implement you know all all the technology at the milk parlor too we didn't do it because we didn't have the money at the moment but it's prepared to to have the the milk meters on every milk machine and even the sensors to measure the quality of the milk even though we have very good quality we get premiums uh, for our quality of milk so it doesn't seem to be a problem but uh, it's, it's always better to detect early. If, if you can, through the milk system, you can detect if a cow is already pregnant or if she's in heat or she has any kind of problems, it'll help you save money. For me, in dairying, it's uh, prevention. You need to prevent. To cure, it's too expensive. You have to be ahead, ahead of the problem. In the Peru system, you mentioned that you keep things or supplies on hand for breakdowns because it's so hard to get the materials that you need if something happens. Is that the same type of 
infrastructure that you're working with in Ecuador, or are there more, is there better access to resources that you might need if something goes wrong? No, Ecuador is better served. Ecuador is a dairy country. You have a lot of dairies. Today, we're probably three or four dairies in the whole of Lima. So there's no technical service. In Ecuador, you call on the phone and you have help 10 minutes away. I mean, Ecuador has much more dairying, small farms, but uh, there's a lot of technical service and a lot of stores that serve, like for instance, the De Laval spare parts, you can get them in three, four different places. I can call my milk processing plant and ask them to bring me the spare parts and they will bring them with, with, a, with a truck that brings that takes the milk. So it's, it's a much, much better service in Ecuador than in Peru. So what does the political climate look like in Ecuador and how does the government interact with agriculture in that country? Well, right now, we have a very good president. I mean, he's a, he's a businessman. Unfortunately, he doesn't like dairy or he doesn't understand dairy. He was just in Uruguay and openly said that he would open our borders to import milk and meat from Uruguay, where we have excess milk and excess uh, meat that we could export. So that doesn't sound too good. But on many other aspects, he's really working to make Ecuador work. Basically, his idea is to open Ecuador to the world and uh, make Ecuador be in the world. So at the end of the day, uh, he's uh, aiming for globalization, which is good. And in the long run, it will make our costs come down and be more competitive. So I cannot agree more with him on that. The only thing is right now we have support prices for corn, for instance, we pay more on the local market to the producers and the cost of the imported corn. So we are at a disadvantage against Peru. In Peru, we buy corn on the open market. We can import from the U.S., from Argentina uh, or Brazil, so we can get a better price with the corn. So that, that makes it a little bit difficult. Now, politically, if I have to bet, I bet for Ecuador, even though what he just said I didn't like, and uh, most of the dairy people are really mad at him. But in Peru, unfortunately, we have a communist government. Uh, he's, uh, for, he comes from shiny path. And it's a mess. He's disincenting investing. And that's one of the reasons we haven't moved the dairy yet, because, you know, everybody's hesitating if we should invest in a country that's becoming like Venezuela or Cuba. You know, these people, and and unfortunately, behind these communist governments, you have uh, the dope dealers, narco-traffic, which they want chaos, and they they want the countries not to work well so that they can thrive in chaos. So today, and since uh, you know April last year, uh, when he was elected, we have a, a big cloud in our front, and uh, we really don't know what's going to happen. Now, we get mixed signals. I mean, they just gave this law that's going to help all dairy producers. So on one hand, you know, he's done what nobody else did before, because in this case, he's hurting the industry to favor uh, dairy producers. But on the other hand, uh, he's hurting the whole of the economy and uh, a lot of companies are are hurting. All the mining companies are suffering and that's gonna make the whole country suffer because there's uh, 
less dollars coming in. It, it's kind of a mixed emotion situation. But uh, a lot of Peruvians are trying to go to Ecuador because they think they think that Ecuador is a much better country to be in right now, you know, where it used to be completely the opposite five years ago. We had a 10-year communist government uh, or socialist government in Ecuador that made everything stall. And right now, uh, for a year, we've had a very good president, even though he doesn't like very much daring or, or, or understand it. But I think that we're going to straighten him up. We're going to get to talk to him and make him review his, uh, his point of view. So what are you able to do on the Ecuador side to communicate with government? Is there, are there groups that help you do that? Or is it kind of every farmer for themselves? No, no, no. We have strong organizations. Uh, we have an association of dairy producers and also an association of cattle producers. And we get to talk with the Minister of Agriculture and uh, we can send open letters to the government. Today with, with uh, Facebook and Twitter and all these uh, social media, it's very easy to get to the authorities. So uh, the, the message is there. He already knows it. And uh, I guess he feels ashamed that he spoke up in Uruguay something against the Ecuadorian uh, uh, dairy producers and meat producers. I was reading prior to this conversation about the import laws in Ecuador. And at one point, you couldn't import GMOs. Is that still the case? It's still the case, and it's unfortunate, and the government is trying to change it. Unfortunately, the last, the last government, which was a socialist government, they put it in the constitution. They changed the constitution and put in the constitution that it is unlawful to use GMO products, which is very stupid because we're importing GMO corn and GMO soybean and a lot of products are being processed and eaten by people and used for our cattle, but we can't produce it locally. So basically, it was something completely against us. That's going to change. There's a movement like from the public to make that change, or is this a, a fully farmer-led movement? It's, it's, a fa it's a farm led movement, but we are working with the government to change these because they are aware that it goes against the population and it goes against the farmers. We're losing productivity where we could be harvesting like 11, 12 tons of corn per hectare. We're harvesting five or six for using the local varieties of corn and not the GMOs. And uh, I know that, for instance, in Argentina, there are areas where they could produce 25 tons of uh, corn per hectare, where we, at the most, could get 11 or 12. So it's a handicap for us just because we're not using the proper seeds. Yeah, that genetic access changes the game. And that has to change. I mean, we do hybridization in, in fruits and plants, and that's it's kind of a GMO, and uh, nobody pays attention to it. But uh, this became a political issue. What is the largest advantage that you see in the system that you use, this grazing system in Ecuador versus other opportunities that could be out there? Basically, it's cost effective. I mean, you can still get land for fair prices in Ecuador. And because you have the weather working for you, I mean, 
uh, you have the rainfall and good soil. Uh, you just need to do a good job by uh, becoming a good farmer, you know, and, and you can harvest the milk. And uh, the market is buying, at least we can sell all our milk because we have high quality milk. That doesn't go for everybody. There's some areas that are too far away and maybe they don't get the milk uh, picked up as easy as we do. But it's, it's a bigger, uh, I would say, if you think organic, if you think sustainability, our grazing system is more sustainable than the system we use in Lima. I think that on the long run, the world is gonna be putting pressure to the large farms and moving more to a more sustainable uh, system. Now, the problem is we don't get paid for the milk in order to compensate the value of the land. And that's what makes you compress everything and try to get the most uh, throughput out of your land and the most throughput out of, out, of your, out of your cows. And that you can only do when you enclose your, the cows and then uh, they're not spoiling the, the forage by stepping on it or pooing or peeing on it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, definitely you, you can make your land much more productive if it's plowable land. The land that we have in our farms, uh, in one farm, it, it's all plowable. So we could change the system. In the other one, we're taking advantage of land that it's very difficult to get a tractor on, but the cows work on it. So you mentioned before, again, before we started recording, that you are involved in a university that's working on a combined system. So taking that grazing system and adding a somewhat confined system with it. Is that a yes. movement that is coming to fruition or is this just something that the industry is exploring to see if it is the better option? Actually, well, I'm on the board of trustees of Samorano University in Honduras, which is a beautiful university. I recommend you to Google it and uh, you'll be surprised because it's, uh, it, it doesn't end to any of the best campuses in the US, you know, like uh, Cornell or UC Davis or A&M in, in Texas. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful university. And they have been daring for, I mean, the university is 80 years old. The main focus was to teach students from very poor countries to help them take technologies. So they were not pushing for the best technologies. And now, uh, because I'm doing some counseling to the teachers, we're working on a master plan to have the three different systems to have a few fully enclosed cows so that the students can compare and learn and see the costs of doing dairying that way. Also fully grazing and the interim, which is what they do currently, which is they uh, graze six months a year when it rains and they keep them enclosed and feed them silage and corn and soybeans during the other six months. So it's very interesting because you get the chance to compare the three systems in one site. Uh, the fully grazing would be with irrigation system, but we're, we're working on sustainability and we want to make sure that all what we're doing is sustainable on the long run. We're like, for instance, for fertilizers, we're working with violis, uh, which is basically fertilizer produced with the same manure uh, of a cow and not having to use chemicals. In Ecuador, we used uh, chicken manure a lot. I mean, we buy manure from the from the farms, the, the chicken 
and egg-laying uh, hand farms, and that's what we use as fertilizer. In Peru, we use a lot of chemical. Also, uh, our cow manure goes to, to the land, but there's a lot of uh, imported fertilizer. And today, the world is changing because the fertilizers have gone four or five times up. So, so that's going to make a big change for sustainability. I find it interesting that this one school has all three systems that allows students to hands-on explore what this could mean for them. I might have to take a trip is what I'm coming to the realization of. But Robbie, for you, I, I want to end this on what you see the future to be for dairy in Ecuador. What does that look like for you? It's fully grazing with technology, uh, measuring the pasture where you're going to get the cows in. Uh, I've, I'm already seeing some farms, they have meters to measure the quantity and the growth of the, the forage, and they will choose the lot where the cows are moving to graze in order to optimize the milk throughput. And if the uh, pasture is a little bit mature, they'll probably ensile it, make silage or haylage or even let it mature more so that they can feed the dry cows uh, with uh, more fiber and less protein uh, food. Definitely technology is very important for the milk production. I think milk production is gonna thrive because there's many countries that are losing milk production uh, because it's too much work and the young kids don't wanna work on the farms anymore. They've seen their fathers, uh, their parents, uh, you know, working too hard and they don't want that lifestyle. Also, because land is becoming more expensive, and also because of regulations. Unfortunately, there's a movement, uh, vegetarians and all these people against uh, dairies and cows, and that's uh, driving milk consumption, uh, at least milk as, as fluid milk, down. But the cheese industry and milk process uh, industry is growing, so I see a great future for Ecuador because it has the conditions to produce economically as of other countries don't have it. In the case of Peru, because we have a leftover of the crops, we can produce in a profitable way. Otherwise, we would be out of the market. Peru could not have dairies if it would depend only on imported corn or uh, soybean or imported uh, uh, goods. But in Ecuador, we can produce everything. The weather is so good and we have beautiful sunshine. The grass, you can see it grow daily. So I, I do see the industry thriving. The only limit is the land. There's, there will not be enough land, uh, but I mean, there's a lot of space to, to grow. I think that's a perfect way to wrap this up, Robbie. And I had no idea that this is going to be a two-part episode, but I'm so glad that you had the time to, to talk with me longer. This has been incredible to learn what it's like farming not only in Peru but also in Ecuador and where your industry is going and how it's changing and it's fun to hear how you use trips to World Dairy Expo to make your farms better. Thank you Katie and looking forward to see you and meet you in at World Dairy Expo. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. 
And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 